title of tonight's message is The Coming King. You'll see why when we get there. But these next few chapters are a little interesting. They're what we call an oracle, and they're sort of a mix of kind of prophetic poetry, poetry and prophecy sort of combined, and also some symbolic imagery. But also what's really neat about this chapter, these three chapters, we're going to cover 9, 10, 11. We're going to see Jesus three different times, and we're going to link the Old Testament to the New Testament. But a little additional kind of curveball I'm going to throw at you, we're going to do a little bit of world history. I don't usually mix much world history in, but I will tonight for a reason, and you'll see why. Because God's Word, Scripture, prophecy in particular, sometimes predicts world history, not just Bible history. Tonight will be one of those nights. So we're going to do 9 through 11 tonight. Then next week will be our last night of Zechariah. We're going to do chapters 12 through 14. There's a bunch of other good stuff in those chapters also, so don't miss next week. After that, we'll announce it when it gets closer, but we're going to do a little short three-week series called the Calvary Distinctives, which is a little short book we saw in our bookstore. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary, wrote it. And it's kind of an explanation of what makes Calvary different from other denominations. It'll be short and sweet because we're really going to start Romans in the fall. So we kind of want to have a little short thing to to keep us interested. And I think you'll like it if you come check it out. And one of those nights, by the way, will be a Holy Spirit night. It'll be, I think, our second week. So don't miss that one either. But let's get into chapter 9. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1, I'm going to start. It says, a prophecy or an oracle. It says, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all the people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and on Hamath too, which borders it. Which makes you wonder, where in the world are these places? Well, Hadrach and Hamath, they're really the area north of Damascus. So just think in your mind, it's sort of northern Syria would be probably the equivalent. And it also says, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very, very skillful, Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. So it's a very rich area. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Now Tyre and Sidon, where they were two main cities, they were north of Israel and kind of what would be modern-day Lebanon. But why are they mentioned here and why are they important? Well, in the ancient world, Tyre was known as a city that nobody could defeat. It was known to be impossible to conquer. Many kings had tried. The Assyrians, who were really the most powerful army at one point in time in that region, they tried to conquer Tyre for five straight years and never could. They just finally gave up and went home. And then also Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. Babylon tried for 13 years. 13 straight years he laid siege to the city, barricaded, blockaded, tried every military trick in the book, had to get up and go home. didn't work. But there is a name we know. This is part of where world history is going to come in. Anybody remember from college or high school even, if you go further back, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. He conquered what was known at the time almost the whole known world, where he did conquer Tyre. He conquered in seven months. So seven months flat, and that was right around 332 B.C. He would also keep going further. He didn't stop there. He was on a world-conquering mission, so he kept progressing south and conquered a lot of the other nations in the way, like the Philistines, the Canaanites, etc. 
And that people group, by the way, these Canaanites or Philistines, because they kind of merged into the same people group, they were always a problem with Israel. Remember who David fought? Goliath. He was a Philistine. And the Canaanites were in the land when Moses sent the scouts to go look at the great land they had come to, the promised land. That's who was living there. But it makes you kind of wonder, because we sometimes forget our Bible history a little bit, where did they come from? Where did they originally come from? Well, we have to go back to Genesis, and I put us a verse on screen. It's Genesis chapter 9. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark, so you know, small family, all that's left is who's in the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan is the father of the people group, the Canaanites. So it makes you wonder, well, who's this Ham guy? Well, there's an interesting story in the Bible. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll paraphrase it. It's, it's right after these verses. If you want to go home and read it, it's almost like a soap opera, by the way. It's the rest of chapter 9. Noah grows some grapes. He gets drunk, gets naked, and passes out. Believe me, it's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. His son, Ham, finds him. So he sees him passed out naked. He doesn't cover him up. And he runs and kind of tells his two brothers, the other two that were mentioned, and he sort of gossips about it. So the two brothers say, oh my gosh, we have to fix this. The Bible story tells us they take Noah's cloak and they hold it and they walk backwards. They don't want to look at him because they don't want to see dad naked. Neither would we, by the way. So they go backwards and they cover him back up. But Ham didn't do anything but go tell people about it. So once Noah sobers up, he pronounces a curse on Ham. And he tells him, you know, you're more or less the bad seed of the family. And he curses him and says, you're going to be a slave to your brothers. And he eventually, this Ham guy, he fathered the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Philistines, and the Egyptians. Any of those tribes sound familiar? That's most of the people that held Israel captive. Or if they didn't hold them captive, they were always causing problems, fighting, warring. So Ham is the father of all these bad people groups. So the curse, you know, did come to fruition. So let's keep reading. Get back to our verses. But that's where we're at. This Ham is the father of this area of people. Ashkelon, that's Philistines, by the way, will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. So those are all Philistine cities. They're all really cities of Ham, if you go back a few generations. Verse 6, it keeps more destruction. It says, a mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. That eventually comes to pass with Goliath and others. God corrects their pride and uses a shepherd boy and a rock to defeat them. Verse 7 says, I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. Well, what does that really mean, like the Jebusites? Well, once again, that was a people group of this area. And let's go back to another verse out of 2 Samuel. We're going to do a lot of history tonight, by the way. 2 Samuel tells us about, there's other parts of the Bible, but let's read the verse about the Jebusites. It says, the king and his men, which was David, marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. It was a fortified city, very strong, 
And look what they're making fun of him. It says, even the blind and the lame can ward you and your army off. Because they thought, even tells us, David cannot get in here. But look what verse 7 says. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. So he took Zion away from the Jebusites, which is the city of David. But it goes on to say, and I'm not going to read this part, that he absorbed the Jebusites into the Israelite nation and kind of made them servants, and they had to serve Israel. He didn't eliminate them or exterminate them. He absorbed them. So that's what this verse means that we just read. Verse 7, Ekron will be like the Jebusites. They will be absorbed into the nation is what it's really telling us. And if you think about the Middle East at this moment, Israel, you know, you have, it's always in the news, Israel and the Palestinians. The Palestinians are more or less absorbed into the country. And if you go there, there's a lot of Palestinians that live in Israel. They have different passports. There are certain cities that are theirs, but they're sort of even nowadays absorbed into Israel. So this verse did actually come true. So Alexander the Great, back to him for a minute. He's attacking, he's wiping everybody out. It makes you kind of wonder, or did me anyway, what happened to Jerusalem? Because he's wiping everybody else and invading, taking over. We have to read verse 8. Verse 8 will tell you exactly why he didn't go to Jerusalem. Um, it says, but I, that's God, will encamp at my temple and guard it against marauding forces. Never again, unless God allows it, never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. So he's going to protect Israel and Jerusalem from Alexander the Great if he chose to go there. But, you know, God works in mysterious ways. There's other verses, and they're not in our Bible. It's more of a historical account. There's a famous Jewish historian named Josephus. Anybody ever heard the name Josephus? He wrote a lot of history down. It's not biblical, but they're still accurate stories. Well, he wrote a story about Alexander going to the Israelites. And here's how I'm just going to once again paraphrase a little bit. He goes to the city. He meets with the high priest. He bows down to the priest, which he didn't have to do because he's the world conqueror. And he tells the high priest, according to Josephus, that God spoke to him in a dream, told him to come to town, bow and worship, and then pray to their God and offer sacrifices to the Lord, which Josephus says he did. And after he does that, the, the high priest and the, all the kind of officials, they read to him out of the book of Daniel. And if you go to the book of Daniel, it's in chapter 8 and 11, it says there will be a king that conquers the world that comes out of the area of Greece. So they read those verses to him. He gets all excited and thinks it's like his approval to keep conquering. So he leaves Jerusalem alone, according to Josephus. Now, once again, it's not in Scripture, but we do know historically that Alexander the Great never attacked the Israelites. So it kind of lines up. World history and Bible history, and this they don't always line up. And by the way, this always trumps world history. This one's number one, but in this case, they literally line up, and it's kind of interesting, which brings up our first main point tonight if you're taking notes. Remember, God said he would protect them. When God is our protector, anything the world says or tries to do is really irrelevant. It's irrelevant, and it will fail because God will be our protector. They didn't have to worry about the world conquering Alexander. God says, never again will anybody invade my city. And he, he left out in parentheses, unless I allow it, because we know God does allow Israel to go into captivity over and over. They keep being rebellious. 
They're not doing what they're supposed to, but he's protecting them from outside forces. Now, verse 9 is probably one of the best verses of the night. This is where we get the coming king from, our title. Let's read that one together. Verse 9. And this will be, we're going to have three moments. I told you we'll see Jesus three times. This is our first see Jesus moment. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Zion. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because, we, it, see, I knew it would. It did to me too. We just forget sometimes it comes out of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles or your phone, I'm not going to put these on screen, but turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I'll give you just a second to get there. And by the way, these are the verses that we know. We recognize these. We hear them every Christmas and Easter time usually. These verses were written 500 years later, Matthew 21. And that's hard to get your head around because we know it's 500 years, but we forget how, how far back that would be. That would be like somebody nowadays in maybe the year 1500, like the Crusades writing about one of our current presidents. That's a long time. 500 years is a long time. But anyway, let's read Matthew 21, verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, and this is the disciples and Jesus, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Verse 3 says, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, let's think about context here. We think it's maybe like you're, you're borrowing their pet, their donkey, their foal. This is more like they stole your car. This is different. And those, think about the early apostles. They're like, you know, Jesus, uh, you're the Messiah. I've really been following you, but you're asking me to go steal this guy's car is our, our equivalent. And they're probably a little nervous about doing this, but we all know it happened exactly like Jesus told them. And then in verse 4 it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet is Zechariah. Let's look at this verse on screen. I put the Matthew 21, 5 on screen for us. Here's what it says, in case you don't have a phone or your Bible with you. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you humble or lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's ex Jesus is quoting that verse from Zechariah. Our verse 9 is this Matthew 21, 5. So we know that verse. We just sometimes forget where it came from. Well, now you know. And I ran across a quote as I was studying from Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Spurgeon says about that word lowly that we see in those two verses. He says, we must never try to act lowly. We must be lowly. In other words, it has to be inside us. Then, it's not an act, then we shall naturally act in a humble manner. And here's the very kind of dig part. It's astonishing how much pride there is in the most modest person. It's a challenge. You know, we, we don't have to act lowly, act humble. We have to be humble like Jesus. He's our role model for humble. Because what Spurgeon's trying to tell us, plenty of people claim to be humble. 
If a person claims to be humble, that's probably a red flag they might not be, by the way. We have to act humble. It has to come out of us inside to the outside. If I go around telling all of you every night how humble I am, I'm probably, to be honest, prideful about my humbleness. That's not right. That's what Spurgeon's trying to tell us. So let's all work on being humble. Because in God's eyes, we're all equal. There is no difference in, in God's eyes or for any of us. Let's keep reading back to our text in Matthew. We're staying in Matthew. This is verse 6. Matthew 21, verse 6. Because there's more good stuff coming up before we finish this little kind of side trail. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted a famous, another couple of words we know, Hosanna. And that really means, if you look at the translation, that really means save us. So they're shouting, save us, save us, son of David. Then they follow that up with, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So now that we know that in Matthew, 500 years later, let me go back and read a tiny piece of our verse 9 out of Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. We just read in Matthew, they were shouting, were they not? They were shouting, Hosanna. So now, once again, we're connecting Old Testament and New Testament, 500 years apart. And by the way, to further connect it, we sing a song all the time. What do we sing? Hosanna in the highest, Zechariah is where we get it from, and also Matthew. So it's kind of neat to tie all that together. It makes the Bible sort of come alive even further. Now, verse 9 was about his, his first coming, and that's called his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Verse 10, we're going back to Zechariah now, so jump back to Zechariah, Zechariah verse 10. And this is about his second coming, his second coming to earth. Here's what it says. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He, that's he, Jesus, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, and that river, by the way, is the Euphrates, from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is predicting Jesus' second coming as conquering king. Once again, let's tie that verse to a verse we know, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, 4, it'll be on screen for us. This is also about, this is an end times verse about the peace Jesus will bring in end times. So now think back to Revelation. A couple of months ago, we kind of read about this a different way. It says, they will beat all the armies. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks or farming tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So Russia will not be invading Ukraine ever again in end times. Praise the Lord. Look at all the wars we have in our world right now. And in times, Jesus is going to say, no more of that. I'm the conquering king. I'm bringing peace. Put all those tools down and make them into farming instruments. So... It's a prophecy about end times. It ties in with our verse tonight. Let's read another verse, verse 11. As for you, the people that are hearing this, 
Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. He's telling people, remember, come back to Jerusalem. Build this wall. Build the temple. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I, will, I announce I will restore twice as much to you. So God is consistent these last few chapters. He's telling the people, return to me, obey me, follow me, and I will bless you. But it's conditional. They have to return. And not just return to the city. Remember, there's a small group that have returned to do the building work. He wants the people's heart to return to putting him first in their lives. We're going to skip to chapter 10. So skip to chapter 10. We're not going to skip much tonight, but just a few verses that really don't tie in or give anything that we won't see in a different verse. So skip to chapter 10, verse 1. Here's what 1 says. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain, and here's the key, to all people. When they were farmers, rain was very important to all people. And he, pl- and he gives the plants of the field to everyone. So God is a God of equality, is what this verse is telling us, which brings up our second point if you're taking notes. God is a God of equality. He sees all of us with equal eyes. We're no different from each other to him. He provides equal blessings to all for, for us, but look what he requires. Equal obedience from all or from us. So I have to obey the same as you do and vice versa. Everybody in this room, everybody watching online, we all have to obey the same way. God wants all our heart all the time. It's conditional. Then he will bless our socks off. But we have to obey. And that's what he's still telling these people chapter after chapter of Zechariah. Verse 2. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners or fortune tellers see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. In other words, they're no use to you people. Follow me. Therefore, look what happens. Because they're focused on the wrong thing, these fortune tellers, diviners. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. So the people were seeking wisdom in all the wrong places. They were reading their horoscope, not their Bible. That's what was happening. And they had wandered because their leaders had wandered. The leaders were even worse. The Bible is crystal clear about the responsibility of leaders, including all the pastors, myself, here at Calvary. Um, This is a verse we know, but I think it's important we kind of look at it because it ties in with our text today. Romans chapter 16, we'll have it on screen. That way you don't have to flip to it. Look what it says, and you know this verse too. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Contrary to what's in here. Stay away from them. It's a pretty strong warning. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord, even though they might look like they are. They are serving their own personal interest. By smooth talk and glowing words, look at the next few words. They deceive innocent people. So they deceive people. A couple of weekends ago, Pastor Dave asked the audience an interesting question And not many people got it right. He asked us, do you know if you're being deceived? And nobody was kind of bold enough to answer out loud. And then one or two people did. And really, he made the point, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Otherwise, it wouldn't be deception. So that's the the big danger of these false teachers is 
the people that are listening don't even know they're deceived. And, and they're really out for their own selfish interests. So God is not happy about that. Let's look at our next verse in Zechariah, verse 3. It's going to tie into that Romans verse perfectly. Zechariah 10.3 says, My anger, this is God, burns against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders, these false teachers, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. Now that verse in Romans, this verse we just read, there's other, I could have picked a, a whole list of verses that list about what God will do to false teachers and false leaders. All of us pastors here at CCM take these verses very seriously because it really says in other verses, I'm not going to read us, but I'll paraphrase them, that I, Pastor Dave, Brian, all the staff pastors here, I see Pastor Don in the back, we will be judged harsher being the leader than even people that aren't pastors. We have to have even a higher standard of behavior. If I have self-interest and selfish gain, God's going to know that. And even if it might deceive some of you, God is not deceived and he's going to punish me for it. Also, he's going to judge me on how I teach his word. It's a pretty strong verses that say we get judged twice as strict as everybody else. And we know this, trust me, the pastors know these verses. It's, a, it's kind of a big responsibility. So we all want to make really sure we live a, a, an exemplary. We're not perfect, but we try to live our lives based on God's words the best we can. And when we fail, when we will, we just repent. And just like God is telling these people in these stories, repent, come back, turn to me, say you're sorry, and move on. But we have to try our best to represent the Lord well. And that means our lifestyle, our teaching, our teaching of his word, because we are once again held to a higher standard. Now, every now and then, we have a class called School of Ministry. Anybody interested now? Yeah, I thought that would be the case. I might get a few laughs out of that one. Because you forget about that part when you think, yeah, that School of Ministry sounds kind of cool. I might want to be up there someday. Well, be ready to get judged to a higher standard is what I would warn you about. Um, but I'm really just kidding. We do offer that class every so often. We'll have another one at some point. Um, we don't know when yet, but um, don't let me scare you out of it if you really feel like God's called you to that. And we'd be glad as one of the pastors to talk with you, anybody that's interested about that. Let's get back to verse 4. Verse 4, this is our next period. This is our see Jesus moment number 2. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Now, cornerstone is all through Scripture. And think about a cornerstone in, in a building. It's really, back in those days especially, it was the first, most important. You had to measure the boundaries. You had to get the surveyor to come tell you where to put it. And it was the start or the foundation of that building. And Jesus used that very analogy against the Pharisees. Once again, a verse we know. It's out of Matthew 21. We're going back to Matthew 21 for a second. Look what it says. Jesus is talking to the, the religious leaders. Have you never read in Scripture, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And what he was trying to tell the Pharisees, you rejected me, but I'm the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. And sometimes it confuses us. You'll see cornerstone, capstone. Cornerstone, just think of this as more the foundation, the building block of everything, which would be Jesus. 
But occasionally you'll see Jesus called the capstone. That's the finishing. So he is. He's Alpha and Omega, the start and the finish. He can be both. He's the best stone, the most important stone, the cornerstone for our lives. Also, he's the capstone. Nothing is better without a capstone. Jesus is the capstone. So really, they're very important. They're both important, but he's both at the same time. Skip down to verse 8, still in the same chapter, chapter 10, verse 8. It says, God speaking again, I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. And he redeemed us through Jesus, as we know. They will be as numerous as before, so the city will be as big as it used to be. Though I scattered them among the peoples, because they were rebellious and got hauled off to captivity, in distant lands they yet remember me. They and their children will survive, and they will return. Now, if you were here last week, I gave us an example of how that really happened in 1948. But keep in mind, it was a partial fulfillment. So the people group, the Israelites, came back to the promised land, but only really their bodies came. They didn't really come spiritually. If you go to Israel, you'll probably be shocked if you take that trip we keep kind of promoting they're not much more religious than America is right now. In our minds, we kind of imagine they are. There's the Hasidic Jews that wear the black robes and the big wool hats. There is some kind of really diehard serious people, just like there's serious people in America, like all of us. But for the most part, the Jewish nation doesn't even go to temple. They think because they have DNA that's Jewish, they're going to heaven, and that's all they need. Nowhere in Scripture does God tell them that. It's just their easy way out of not going to temple, not putting the work in. So they have returned, but really I would call it it's a partial return. They have to fully return spiritually, and that really means get on board with the Messiah. Because even those Hasidic Jews, they don't recognize Jesus. So it's sad when you see that, and you, you can't really talk to them. They're pretty close-minded about you know Jesus, but someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. God's Word says that. So partial fulfillment. Let's keep reading. We're going to move to chapter 11. Turn to the next chapter, chapter 11, and then skip down to verse 4. This part's pretty interesting. This is kind of a contrast of two shepherds, a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And we'll read about them as we go through. You'll see what I mean. Here's what verse 4 says. And, and bear in mind, this is all Zechariah still here. This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them. And, and that's the nation of Israel, by the way, this flock. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I'm rich. I'm making money off selling slaves. Their own shepherds do not spare them. So in verse 7, it tells us, I shepherd the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs, or two big sticks, and called one favor and the other union. Some of your translations may use a, two different words, but they're all similar in context. Favor and union. Then it says, I shepherded the flock. And if you read this, the narrative of this story, Zechariah is at this moment, he's almost acting out a play. He's play acting like he's a shepherd. He literally has two big shepherd hooks or sticks. And he's kind of acting out for the people that are watching and listening. And he's trying to act out the good and bad shepherd to warn them, you've got to repent and turn back to God. And 
Why are they marked for destruction? It makes you kind of wonder when it says shepherd the flock marked for destruction. Well, think about all these chapters we've covered up before tonight. These people are rebellious, and they're also following false teachers. So really, God has two things against them. You're rebellious, you're doing your own thing, you're living your life apart from me. Remember last week, he asked them, why are you fasting on this one festival? All year long, your heart is far from me. That's what he's still calling them out about. And now they're even following false teachers. So Zechariah is play-acting this out physically by holding these two shepherd staffs. Verse 8, in one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock, the nation, detested me, and I grew weary of them. Now, this is part of the symbolism that I hinted at when I talked about the oracle. It was, remember, symbolic poetry. So we don't know exactly what these three shepherds are, but I'll give you what I would call the most agreed on or the most common interpretation, and it makes sense to me too, by the way. You can make your own minds up, but most of the the really Bible scholars that study these kind of things their whole lifetime, they think it really means not three shepherds, but three classes of people the Israelites were used to. And the classes would be the kings, the priests, and the prophets, Kings, priests, and prophets. And if you know anything about Jewish history, do they have any of those anymore? No. I'll help you out. No. And they all three got done away with when Rome invaded, and they've none of them never returned. They don't have a high priest anymore either. Not just the king. There's no high priest, and there's no prophet. Why? Well, if you kind of subscribe to that theory, Jesus replaced all three. He is our king. He is our high priest, Scripture tells us that, and he's also the prophet. He's always telling them what he's going to do. He speaks prophetically all the time. So Jesus replaced all three of those roles or those classes of people, never to return because they're not, once Jesus went to the cross, they're totally unnecessary. That's why they're gone. But if you have a better theory, feel free to email me. If not, let's read another verse. Because now God's going to get a little more kind of firm with them. Verse 9, God says, I will not be your shepherd. And he's speaking through Zechariah. I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And as you read that verse, think about it as as almost an eternal perspective of the Jewish nation, Israel. Let the dying die, let the perishing perish. Eternally, if they don't believe in Jesus, they don't go to heaven because of that DNA they believe they have. They might have it, but that's not a free pass. They are going to die and perish if they don't have Jesus. Jesus, remember, he says, I am the way, not the way for the Gentiles and you Jews get the DNA way. He says, I am the way. The only way. So if they don't have Jesus, this verse is like prophetic that they're going to hell. It's really sad to think about. But one day, once again, I'm going to repeat myself, their knee will bow, their tongue will confess, but not till end times. And we covered that in Revelation. Which brings up our next point. Point number three, if you're taking notes. Rejecting the shepherd, rejecting Jesus, it might seem to people in the world, even to the Jews, to bring some sort of personal freedom but really it brings eternal death. And we all know, because we're believers, and if you're not yet a believer, we can pray with you at the end of the service tonight, but we are free. 
the world out there is not free. They're in bondage to the world, to sin, to possessions, to stuff. They're chasing after things that don't matter. They think we're being controlled. Who's free? We are. But that's what, see, Satan deceived. He's the best deceiver. They don't know they're deceived. They think we are, but once again, we know what the Word says. Those who the Lord sets free are what? Free indeed. Amen. And also, I'm going to back up to verse 9 and read that last little tail in. It says, let those who are left eat each other's flesh. That sounds like a bad Hollywood movie, but if you read Bible history, this really happened. In the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it tells us even in Scripture the people ate their children, they ate each other. So this is a warning, but they didn't heed it once again. So this cannibalism, as crazy as it sounds, really happened to the Jewish people. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, it says, this is Zechariah again, play acting. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it. So he literally broke it in, in their view. And it revoked the covenant I made with the nation. So he's literally demonstrating, I'm breaking God's favor. You are no longer his favorite people. I don't care what DNA you have. You're not his favorites anymore because of your bad behavior. And the covenant that he's referencing, he says, I'm going to break a covenant. Let's look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. We're going to look at a couple of verses. It says, this is the covenant that he's breaking right here. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. Then look at 28 right below it. They will no longer, the people, be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. So this is the covenant of protection that God is breaking through Zechariah. He says, now the people will attack you. They will haul you off into captivity. You might have wild animals and lions. You know, David, remember in Scripture, talks about, I killed the lion, I killed the bear. This covenant was protecting them up until this point. But because of their rebellious nature, God is going to break the covenant. Verse 11, it was revoked on that day, the covenant, and so the oppressed of the flock were watching me. They knew it was the word, of the, they knew it was true when he broke this staff as they watched. So then it says, I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay. In other words, pay me for acting out this play. I'm doing a drama for you. Pay me what you think it's worth. But if not, keep it. He says, give me my pay, but if not, in other words, if you're not entertained, keep it. Look what they pay him in the rest of that verse. They paid me in 30 pieces of silver. Anybody think that sounds familiar? Of course you do. This is our see Jesus moment number three. What did Judas get paid to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. So he's telling the people watching, pay up if you think it's worthy. So they do. And, and we'll see what happens in a minute. But just so you know, 30 pieces of silver, that's a very insignificant amount of money to the people that heard this. It's the price to buy the lowest slave. And really, it's not a lot of money, and we'll see why in a few minutes, because Zachariah is even going to make fun of what they paid. But let's look at the verse we do know. Um, it's in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew a lot tonight. Matthew 27, but this one I'll put on screen for us. Matthew 27, this is a 30 pieces of silver verse we know. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah, and I bolded that for a reason. We'll get back to that name in a second. 
spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people, set on him as Jesus, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. But that says Jeremiah. What book are we in tonight? Zechariah. So it's kind of in some ways what some people call the Bible controversy. You'll hear people kind of say, your Bible's not accurate, it messes up words. Well, here's the controversy in a nutshell, and I'll give you three good possibilities. Even I don't have a favorite on this one, by the way. They're all pretty equal to me. I'll let you make your own mind up, but I'll at least tell them to you. Here's three possibilities of why that says Jeremiah, not Zechariah. Maybe the name was copied wrong by an early transcriber, because think back to context. The Bible was all handwritten. There was guys in rooms you know, copying word for word. If you've been copying for hours and hours, it could easily be a mistake you would make, Zechariah, Jeremiah. The question is, did they know it and just say, you know what, I just did 10 pages. I am not changing that. It's close enough. You can almost imagine that. That's probably not what happened, by the way. That's my little elaboration. But here's the next possibility, which is probably a little more valid, by the way. So the copyist, I said I didn't have a favorite. That's probably my least favorite, but these next two are, to me, about a tie. Jeremiah may have spoken this prophecy because they were contemporaries. He could have spoken it. Zechariah might have written it. All it says is on the verse we read, Jeremiah spoke it. That could be true, and Zechariah could have recorded it. But here's the one I kind of like the best. Those two are a tie. Maybe in Matthew they're referring to the scroll. Remember how Bibles were back in those days? It was a long scroll. If you look at how they were arranged, you know, we make them chapter verses. We chop the whole Bible up into different books. In those days, it was a scroll. The scroll of Jeremiah would have had the book of Zechariah in it or on it. So it was a long scroll. It had more than one what we would call book. They didn't have chapters and verses like we do. So that would have been also a true statement. He could have said, when, when Matthew was writing that, it's the, the scroll of Jeremiah and Zechariah would have been in there. So that one, once again, so there's at least two to two and a half if you buy the whole scribe transcription thing. But it's not a mistake. It's easily explained. Don't let an unbeliever tell you that's a mistake. It, it's really easily explained. And every mistake that you'll hear about, by the way, when people say the Bible's changed, you can't, it's all these differences and people have found them. That's one of the ones they're talking about, that one right there. And that's why I wanted to kind of touch on it. That way you'll be able more to defend your faith. Like, well, give me an example. And if they ever bring this one up, say, no, no, I know that one. That one is in the scroll of Jeremiah. So that's no problem. Anyway, let's get back to our text and off my little rabbit trail of Scripture. Verse 13. Back to what Zechariah is saying out loud. And the Lord said to me, he's talking about these 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter. The same thing Judas's money went to. The handsome price, and he, he, he's saying really handsome price with a lot of sarcasm, at which they value me because it was really a trivial amount of money, like I told us. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord, to the potter's field. In other words, it's such a small, trivial amount, he's going to throw it in the potter's field, just like they did with Judas's money. And we don't get the context of that, by the way, because anybody ever seen a potter's field? I never have. I doubt anybody, unless you're a potter yourself and you throw it in your backyard, maybe that's your potter's field. 
But that would be actually a good kind of illustration because the potter's field back then, it was the most useless piece of land in town. All it was full of was broken, discarded, rejected pottery. It's all those sharp pieces that are broken and no good. And think of a whole field filled with that stuff. You couldn't farm it. You couldn't grow crops on it. It was kind of like the no good land of the city. They just threw, so they threw this money on the worst piece of land in the city. Now let's apply that to Jesus, which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. Jesus' death, he purchased the world. Our world that we came out of is like a potter's field. It's full of broken, rejected, damaged people. Not pottery, people. But he purchased us, the broken, rejected people of the world, with his death and made us into a treasure. So the potter's field, he turned from a terrible thing into a beautiful thing. And the beautiful thing is all of you. We all, in a way, came out of the potter's field. Because at one point in our lives, probably the world has rejected us or made fun of us or, or belittled us. We were these broken, rejected scraps of pottery that Jesus paid his life for. He bought the potter's field, which is the whole world. Isn't that kind of cool to think about? Yes, it is. I'll answer for you. Okay, verse 14. Back to our story. Remember, he's already broken one stick. Now he's got the second one. Then I broke my second staff called union. So he broke the covenant. Now he's going to break the union. And it tells us he's breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. So now he's breaking their connection as a family between Judah and Israel. This was also fulfilled when the Jews rejected Jesus after the cross because the whole nation sort of fell apart. It turned into warring factions. They all started arguing. Judah hated Israel and vice versa. And before long, a few more generations go by, nobody even remembers or knows what tribe they came out of because it was a big thing to them before. I'm out of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm out of the tribe of Judah. After Jesus' death, they all forgot where they came from. All they know is they're from Israel. So this is kind of the prophetic place where it happened. He broke the union of the people. Verse 15, let's keep moving. This is now coming the bad shepherd. We've been talking about the good one so far, even though he's breaking things and breaking covenants. Here comes the real bad one. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy. He will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. So this bad shepherd is really bad. He's not just going to not take care of the people like the, these bad leaders they've been following. He's going to harm the sheep. It says he's going to eat the sheep. Let's read verse 17 and we're done. Woe to this worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. Now, verse 16 and 17, these bad shepherd verses, they kind of have two or three meanings. He's trying to warn the people there's a heavy price to pay if you reject the good shepherd. Remember, the good shepherd would be Jesus. If you reject Jesus, a bad shepherd is going to come and he's going to eat you. And then in verse, kind of the second kind of analogy I would make, even though God's going to let this bad shepherd lead the people for a while, he's going to face judgment and get wounded for it. And really, that's a picture of the ultimate bad shepherd, the Antichrist. 
If you were here back through Revelation, I know most of you were. Remember how the Antichrist got wounded? He had a mortal wound to his eye and his head, but he recovered. And it's before he goes in the lake of fire. This is likely a picture of the Antichrist being wounded. That verse I just read where it says, his right eye will be blinded, his arm will be withered. So God is going to give them a chance to follow the good shepherd. If you reject the good shepherd... The bad one is going to be like your worst nightmare. It's a heavy price to pay, but they're still going to do it, just like our world still does it now, just like maybe some of us have done it. So maybe if you're here tonight, you've rejected the good shepherd. As we close, I'm going to pray in a second. Come down front. I'd love to pray with you, kind of recommit your life to the Lord. But don't miss next week. Um, Like tonight, how we've tied some verses out of Zechariah to the New Testament, There's going to even be more next week. Um, Pastor Bob Russell will be here. It's talking about mourning for the pierced one. Things I don't want to give it all away because I'll be stealing Bob's sermon. But there's a bunch of more Jesus stuff coming next week that we kind of forget sometimes what verse and chapter it came from. It's in Zechariah, just like the verse we read tonight about the foal and the coat. So don't miss next week. And then after that, we'll start up that little short series on the Calvary Distinctives. There is one night coming, too. We're having a kids' camp. I know some of you are parents and grandparents. We're going to have a special missions night focused on the kids and the missions camp. That'll be a great night, too, so don't miss that one. But let's close and pray. But once again, if you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus, come find me. If you're watching online, call the church office. We'd love to call you back and pray with you and lead you to the Lord also. Father, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for these verses that just remind us 500 years prior to you entering Jerusalem, Zechariah predicted it through God's word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for redeeming us. We are that broken pottery, Lord. We are the potter's field. You bought us with the price of your own life. You redeemed us and made that worthless potter's field a beautiful thing in your sight. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we just want to follow you the rest of our life. Unlike the people in our story, Lord, help us to follow you till death do us apart, until that final day we see you come home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.